to just do it out of some tradition or because it's expected of us. Uh, we want to make sure that we are giving it great worth. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, again, we are honored and humbled that you would have us at your table. And as we hold these elements of communion in our hands, we are reminded of your great love for us. Lord, that it was your body that was broken for us. You took the punishment we deserved upon yourself out of love to pay our price. And that you are the source of strength. You are the source of life. And as we take this bread today, we again admit that we have no strength without you. And it's only found in you. And, uh, and we thank you for your great love for us. Let's take the bread together. And Lord, no matter what we could ever give or sacrifice, it would never take away even one of our sins. But you, by your perfect holy blood shed on our behalf, have taken them all away. And we, again, admit that it is only in you that we are seen as cleansed and holy and white as snow. It is your blood that has cleansed us. And as we take this cup, we thank you for loving us enough to shed your blood on our behalf. Let's take the cup together. God, we thank you for this time of worship. Pray you just continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on this place and have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? I think that's it. All right, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5 today. And the goal is to actually do the whole chapter. So we're going to see if that works or not, but that's the plan. Last week, we saw uh, in chapter 4, Jesus beginning his ministry and the rejection at Nazareth, that his hometown he goes back to, and um, that because they know who he is, they know his family, they know that he grew up there, uh, they won't hear what he has to say. And so he goes from there to Galilee and continues to preach in the synagogues there, casting out demons, healing many. And Jesus is doing this great work. But keep in mind, as Luke records these things, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the other gospels really kind of pick up at him calling the disciples first. And, and while he was in this area around Galilee, he was already doing some works, teaching. He was becoming very well known. And it makes a little bit more sense now as we get into chapter 5 when he calls the disciples. And if you've ever thought it was a little bit odd as you read through uh, some of the other Gospels where Jesus just seems to be this random dude that shows up on the beach and there's these fishermen. He's like, hey, follow me. And they're like, okay. And they just ditch everything and follow him. You're like seems odd. But when we know that he's already gotten a following, and that he's already been teaching, that people are aware of who he is, and he shows up that morning, as we'll see in chapter 5 today, and calls these guys, and he calls Matthew, the tax collector, um, they were already desiring to follow after Jesus. The other things we see here in this chapter, and we're going to see this throughout the, the Gospels, is all of the Gospels show, 
Um, the things that Jesus loves and the things that Jesus doesn't love. The people that he shows great grace upon and the people he has to be harsh with. And it's interesting to me because it shows so much of his character, right? I mean, that's the, my favorite thing about the Gospels. Yeah, there's cool, interesting things about history and culture and all of that. But my favorite thing is learning the character of Jesus. And so as he interacts with people, I, I always take note of the great compassion he shows on some and the strength of the hard stand he takes against others. So we're going to see all those things as we get into chapter 5. So let's pray and we'll get into it. God, again, we are so thankful for your word, and we're thankful that we had to gather together today as a family to hear your word and be taught by you. Holy Spirit, we give you this time. We pray that you would take your word and plant it in our heart, that we would be changed, and that you would apply these things to our lives individually and to this church as a whole. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So chapter 5, starting in verse 1 says, And so it was, as a multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood on the lake of Gennesaret, excuse me, stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were breaking. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so, when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Jesus is here by the Sea of Galilee. It's, Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. It's actually called by about three or four different names, but it is, in fact, the Sea of Galilee. And this large crowd gathers to hear again. This shows us that Jesus already had some attention. People wanted to hear what he had to say. And, and it was a large enough crowd that they were kind of pressing against him. So he uh, gets into Simon's boat, has him put out just a little bit from shore, and uh, begins to teach. And there's a couple interesting things about this. I think we see some things that, that uh, we kind of miss about how Jesus did things. And also I think we see some cool things about Peter himself. Uh, first of all, by getting in the boat and kind of backing off from shore, it gives him some space, right? He can make eye contact. He can see the group that's there on the shore. 
but he also takes advantage of the natural amplifier of water. That uh, I don't know if you've ever been on a, a calm lake, like fishing, and you can hear a, somebody talking in a boat a mile away. Because water reflects sound, and sound kind of almost clings to it as it goes across the surface. It's amazing. So Jesus is able to teach this crowd of people very naturally, um, all from Simon's boat. Simon, or Peter, is, uh, has been fishing all night long. And again, I don't know if you've fished all night long. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> I have been on a few adventures going fishing all night long. And every time I get talked into it, people are like, it's great. It's the best. Blah, blah, blah. Never. It's horrible. It smells bad. You're up all night long. And the worst part is you catch nothing. At least that's always been my experience. So I relate with this. And it's after this whole night of catching nothing that Jesus enlists the help of Peter. So it isn't just his boat. He's going, hey, Peter, uh, not only do I need to borrow your boat, I need you to row it, get us a little bit out from shore. Peter's washing his net. He's getting ready to go home. Okay, gets in the boat, right? And he's there. He's, he must be involved with what Jesus is doing. And perhaps he had a great attitude about it, um, but it requires him to be involved. And this is one of the things that I love about how Jesus does things, is he invites us to come alongside what he's doing. Did he need Peter? No. Did he even need Peter's boat? No. But he's inviting him to be a part of it. Peter? I need you. In fact, Jesus puts himself in a place where he's like, I need your help. And he enlists Peter's help uh, to get him involved. Now, after he's done teaching, verse 4 says, he tells him, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Again, he's, he's telling Peter to go a little bit even further beyond. It's like, you don't get a home, go home yet, Peter. I want you to go out a little bit further and catch some fish. <laughs> and to me, again, I just love the whole conversation going on here with Peter and Jesus, even though it's very short. Uh, after this horrible night of catching nothing, frustrated, tired, all these things, uh, Jesus enlists his help. And there's no, there's no agreement, right? There's no rental contract between Peter and Jesus. Like, oh, well, hey, if you let me borrow your boat and you take me out there, I'll make it worth your while. There's none of that. Jesus is just like, I need your help. Peter says, okay. And then when it's done, now Jesus is going to reward extravagantly. And again, I think this is a great insight to the character of Jesus. Because I have known people, and I think it's just part of our human nature, part of our fallen nature. I have known people in ministry that use the ministry as an excuse to get the best deals on everything and sell everything for the highest price. And, and they'll go, well, it's because I'm, I'm a pastor. It's because I'm in the ministry. You're actually supporting the ministry by giving me this deal. You're actually supporting the ministry by paying extra for this, right? That is not how Jesus did things. It's not how Jesus does things. That 
the little bit that Peter does, the little bit that Peter gets involved, Jesus pays beyond measure with this catch of fish. And, and again, I, I love the, the whole thing that's going on here. Peter's just honest. Jesus tells him, go out, let down your net. Verse 5, he says, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Now, I don't think Peter's being rude here, but there is a little bit of, you're the rabbi, and I'm the fisherman. <laughs> I know how to catch fish. We've toiled all night. There's no fish out there today, right? And usually, I mean, again, anything, it doesn't matter where in the world you fish, fish tend to come out first thing in the morning and right at dusk. Once day's up, once the sun's up, your chances go down. You still catch fish, but your best opportunities are when the sun's coming up and when it's going down. And, and so, again, he's, he's just honest with Jesus. He knows what he's talking about, but in spite of his feelings, in spite of what he knows and what he sees, what he's experienced that night, he still obeys. I think that's great insight to Peter, right? Because he could have went, thanks for the suggestion, but I know what I'm doing. And he could have gone home. He would have missed out on everything. But instead, in spite of all that he knows, he just goes, okay, I'll do it anyways. At your word, I'll do it. I think this applies to us in a lot of ways because if we've ever been in that place where you've been sharing with somebody or you've been trying to stand up for the Lord in, an, in your workplace or start a ministry, and, and man, it just sometimes feels like you are just beating your head against a wall. There have been people that I have shared with, witnessed to, tried to encourage for years and got nowhere. Lord, I have fished all night and caught nothing. I have prayed. I have witnessed. I have asked others to pray and share, and we have all got nowhere. But when there is that leading of the Holy Spirit to say, let down your net one more time. That might just be the day they get saved. That might just be the day the breakthrough happens in the ministry. That might just be the day that the unexpected, you go out going, I'll let down my nets, nothing's going to happen, and bang, there's the catch that you never thought was possible, right? I love it. And again, I love the casualness of the conversation. Jesus is just like, hey, man, you should try fishing again. <laughs> eh, okay, whatever. And so Peter... This all happens, and it's huge. So much so, in verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's convicted by this, which tells me that there was something going on in Peter's mind, like, I'm not listening to this guy. Oh, okay, I'll do what he says, but it's not going to happen. There was a doubt there. And then when all of a sudden it all happens, just like Jesus said, he's like, I was completely wrong. And the other thing that's going on here, and I, again, think this is something that's easy for us to miss. Jesus is about to call four of his disciples here. And the catching of the fish, I believe, was preparation for his calling on their lives. Because any of us, if Jesus had, had 
before, before the teaching, before he sent Peter out to drop down the nets one more time, if he had just called them before all of that, the first thing they would have thought of is, well, what about my family? Who's going to take care of my family, Lord? And, and they may have still said, yeah, we'll follow you, absolutely. But the concern would have been, what about, you know, for the sons of Zebedee, what about dad? What about his business? And we're just going to leave all of that behind. Isn't that irresponsible? And so by answering the question before it even comes up. Now, this was a catch of a lifetime. This would have been the legend others would have talked about for decades of like, there was this one morning these guys caught so much fish, their, their boats were sinking, right? This would have paid all of their bills and put money in the bank for quite a while. But that's not why Jesus did it necessarily. I think he did it to show them, I can provide. I can provide for you. I can provide for your family. You don't need to be afraid. So when he called them, that concern was already settled. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he knows how to provide. It's a good reminder, continual reminder for us, right? That we can, we can say that. We know that in our head. The Lord will provide. He'll take care of us. But coming back to those times he has provided, reminding ourselves. I remember when Candy and I were living in uh, southern Oregon, and we were, uh, gosh, Hannah was a brand new baby, and it was right before Christmas, and, and, uh, and things were super tight. <laughs> and again, it was about, I think, week, a week or two before Christmas, anyhow, my boss comes to me and says, hey, uh, I don't know what to tell you. We're out of work. You're laid off for about a month. I'm like, okay. And, and I was kind of inside absolutely panicking. And over the next few weeks, just like everything came in. We received money we weren't expecting. In fact, one time I get a knock on the door and I open the door and somebody's left an envelope with a check in it and just all of this provision and exceedingly abundantly above all. In fact, it was more than I would have been making if I'd worked full time. And for me to go back to that when things get tight, when things get stressful, to go, Lord, you've proven yourself over and over again. You've shown yourself faithful in every way. Why do I get so caught up and so doubtful sometimes? All right, verse 12 goes on. It says, And it happened when he was in a certain city, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report about Excuse me. However, the report went out around concerning him all the more. And the great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And so he himself often withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. We have talked about many times before what a big deal leprosy was. Uh, and it is still, even with all of our technology, all of the things that we know and understand, we cannot reverse its effects. We can arrest it, we can stop it, but we cannot reverse it. 
in that day, leprosy was a death sentence to everyone. No one ever went into remission. No one ever got better. And it is a perfect picture. We see it really as a picture throughout Scripture of being a picture of sin. That the way that leprosy progresses, the way it slowly erodes at your life, it is identical to what sin does to our life. And it ends in death. Now, I find it interesting. This guy shows up. He throws himself down. Now, of course, they weren't even supposed to be out in a crowd or near anybody. They were to shout everywhere they went that they were unclean to keep people away. And uh, usually they wouldn't even be allowed to go into a town. Uh, so gee, this guy coming out just shows his desperation. And I find it interesting that he does not question Jesus' power. What he questions is his willingness. So he doesn't show up and say, Jesus, if you're able to heal me, that's great. If you have the power to heal me, I'd appreciate it. What he says is, if you're willing. That's a big difference. I think that's the question a lot of people have today. Because the real question he's asking is, am I too far gone? Is the, the disease so far spread that I'm hopeless, that there is no hope for me? And I think that's the same question that people have today. They don't question Jesus' existence. They don't question Jesus' power. They do question his willingness. Lord, have I gone too far? Has sin taken such a hold on me? There's no hope. Lord, if you're willing to heal me. Now, as always, Jesus goes above and beyond what anyone would expect. He could have healed this guy at a distance. He could have healed him before he even showed up. But he chooses, and this is important, because he chooses this very clearly to put his hand on him. Not only was leprosy considered a death sentence to the person that had it, it was a death sentence to anyone who touched a leper. Not just unclean. If you touched a leper, they're like, that guy's dead. He doesn't even know it yet. And so when Jesus reaches out and puts his hand on this guy and says, I am willing, it was huge. Everyone would have been shocked. They would have been gasping. Maybe even some screams let out because nobody touched a leper. It had probably been years since anyone had set their hand on this guy. But Jesus does. And again, I love, 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 love that Jesus makes a point of breaking those social norms and laws and what people expect because it was for this one person. Again, he didn't need to touch him. There were other times he healed people. He wasn't even in the same area. But this guy needed to feel the touch of God upon his life. And so he puts his hand on him, verse 13, touches him and says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Um, again, it's a huge deal. And people would have been blown away. It's funny too, and again, this is I think part of kind of breaking what people thought by touching a person with leprosy, according to the law, he was unclean. But once Jesus touched him, he didn't have leprosy anymore, so he wasn't unclean. So people are like, well, what do you do with that? I mean, okay, he was a leper, he's not a leper, so I guess we'll just say he's not unclean, right? And then he tells them not, or he tells this guy not to say anything. Of course, like everybody else, nobody's gonna walk away. Certainly not the guy with leprosy is gonna go, okay, you got him. 
keep it on the down low. I'm not going to say a thing. He would have been shouting it. But it isn't that Jesus said, don't tell anyone. In fact, he sends him to go tell the priest. And we can kind of miss this because of the way it's worded. He says, go to the temple and offer the sacrifice for, for your cleansing. Well, in the Old Testament, there is a sacrifice specifically for a person when they are cleansed of leprosy. But no one in the history of Israel had ever made that sacrifice. No one had ever been cleansed. No Israelite had ever been cleansed of leprosy. So when this guy shows up and goes, hey, um, I need to make this sacrifice for, for a leper that's been cleansed, they would have had to look it up. Like, what? Oh, yeah. Wait, wait, what? You know? <laughs> and Jesus says that it is a testimony for them, for the priest. So he, again, it's not that he isn't saying don't tell anyone. He's like, no, we're just going to tell the priest and let them know that something has changed in Israel. Verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there, was, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town in Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tilings into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why do you reason in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? That you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And when they all, excuse me, and they all were amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Um, Again, this is one of those, I just love this whole scene. Because it's so, again, breaks not only what they thought then, but we think now. As a pastor, uh, distractions are like the enemy during a Bible study. <laughs> and for me, it's such small things, right? So if somebody spills a cup of coffee, not a big deal, but everybody looks. What was that? Or if somebody gets up and walks across the room. Nobody means to, but everybody turns and watches that person walk, and I just go, okay, I've lost everyone for a minute. And then I wait to kind of bring it back. <laughs> but I have never had somebody tear the roof off the house while I'm trying to teach a Bible study. And I picture this whole scene as Jesus is teaching this multitude that is gathered around the house, and suddenly the guys are like, well, what else are we going to do? Let's tear the roof off. <laughs> and it's, it's so bold. It's not just a small thing. Some of the accounts, like, they show them letting this guy down through, like, an existing hole. 
Luke makes it clear they tore the tiling off of the roof. It, it was noisy. It would have been messy. There would have been stuff falling down as Jesus is teaching, you know, and everyone's like, what is going on? And suddenly this guy gets lowered down by a rope, just like the most random thing, and Jesus seems to love it, right? He never is like, I'm sorry, guys, this is too much of a distraction. He's just like, yeah. In fact, he, he praises not the man who was let down, but his friends, that because of their faith, that he was like, these are good friends. <laughs> I love it. Again, it would have never happened in a synagogue. It would never happen in a church today. But I just love the fact that Jesus seems to just take all this stuff in and loves what's happening. Now, there's something interesting in the way that uh, Luke words this first part. And it actually has two meanings. So... Uh, he speaks about the power of the Lord was present to heal them. It does not mean that the power of Jesus came and went. What it means is, is that people's receptiveness to Jesus' power did come and go. And we see that in Nazareth, right? So Jesus is in Nazareth, and we're told in the Gospels that it record that account that Jesus really didn't do very many miracles there because of their unbelief. If they don't come to Jesus, he's not there to heal them. He's not going to be able to heal them if they don't ask for it, right? But on this occasion, the people were very receptive. They were there. Jesus was there with the power to heal, and great things were taking place. So when it, when it refers to the power of the Lord was present to heal them, the first thing that it means, or that Luke is pointing to, is speaking of the crowd. But the second thing that he's pointing to, and again, both of these are true, and I believe it's what Luke meant by wording it this way, is that just before that, he says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law from all of the regions around there in Jerusalem, and the Lord, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. The religious leaders, the self-righteous, everything could have changed for them. But again, they lacked the receptiveness to it. And so the way that it's like this, both sides of the spectrum, this, this contrast that Luke, yes, the Lord was there in power to heal the people, but he was also there in power to heal the, the self-righteous. The people were ready. The self-righteous refused. And so we see this as it all goes down. And again, these people let down this guy, the self-righteous, the, the teachers of the law would have been, you know, embarrassed and oh, how dare they. And these guys, you know, or the role of a rabbi would have been kind of like, what, how would anybody treat a rabbi this way? But Jesus loves it. Verse 20 says, and when he saw their faith, faith of the friends, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I believe that's what this man needed to hear. We don't know his situation, we don't know the details, but I think even more than you are healed, what he needed to hear is you are forgiven. And that Jesus is speaking very directly, very individually to this person. The other Gospels 
kind of paint this picture like this guy was very hesitant, like he did not want to be there. This was not his idea. This was his friend's idea. <laughs> and they're the ones going, no, come on, we're taking you to Jesus. What he needed to hear was that he was forgiven. Uh, some people try and link his sin and his condition, uh, but again, that's not what Jesus is, is saying here. What Jesus is saying is, is really kind of stating what he's about. While Jesus healed a lot of people, Jesus did a lot of things. What he came to do was seek and save that which was lost. To forgive sin. And I believe it, this is the, the, the hinge that this scene turns on because this is the point of decision. The people were receptive to what Jesus was doing and what he had to teach and their self-righteous were not. Each group has to decide who is Jesus. What is he about? Who is he here for? Is he the Messiah or is he not? And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, that's the point of decision for everybody to go, yeah, I believe. Or no, I don't. For the religious leaders, they believe that he is speaking blasphemy. And they begin to, just within their own minds, just within in their own hearts, they're like, that's blasphemy. So we know this is the Messiah. This guy can't be trusted. And Jesus addresses it. Before they speak a word, he's like, why do you think these things? And I, again, love the way he puts it. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And it was like, again, drawing this line. Because which was easier for the Pharisees to say? Well, they couldn't say either. They couldn't say their sins were forgiven. They couldn't say, tell a person to rise and walk. It was, both of them were impossible. And Jesus is going, but for me, they are just as easy. I can do either one. In fact, it's the same thing. And so to prove his claim of who he is, and he does make that claim here. He doesn't leave it kind of ambiguous like, is he saying he's the Messiah? When he calls himself the Son of Man, they knew that reference from the book of Daniel. They knew that pointed to the Messiah. And he goes, but the Son of Man has authority. They knew he was talking about himself. And so he tells the guy, rise and walk. Head on home. Again, I just—I would love to watch, rewatch how this all went down. Verse twenty-four: I say to you, take up your bed and go to your own house. And there's the evidence. There's the claim. The power of God was present to heal, to forgive. One group was ready to receive it; the other was not. Verse twenty-seven goes on. Because after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he left all and rose up and followed him. And then Levi gave a great feast in his own house. And there were gr a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then they said to him, Why do you, excuse me, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? Likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
For the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes the tear, makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And nobody puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskin will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Jesus calling Matthew, I believe, is just as shocking as him touching the leper in those days right? Like I said, when he touched that leper, people would have gasped. When he went by the tax office and went, hey, why don't you come follow me, Levi? Hey, Matthew, I, I got a new job for you. I picture the disciples just going, what? What? And consider the group that Jesus will end up assembling. They're not all there yet, but they are just this ragtag group of blue-collar workers like the fishermen, and then you got the extremists like Judas the Zealot and even, or excuse me, Judas Iscariot and Simon the Zealot. These were the fanatics. We would have called them terrorists in our day. And then on the other political extreme from those guys, you have tax collectors. That by everyone in Israel was considered a traitor. They were Hebrew, but they worked for Rome. And they extracted money from their fellow Hebrews. They were seen as scum and were not allowed to go to synagogue, were not allowed at any of the feasts, were very often rejected by their families. And so Jesus calls this guy. <laughs> and again, I love how casual it is. Jesus just walks by and goes, hey, follow me. And he does. And it was a big deal for him to leave that. It wasn't just like a small thing like, oh, I hate this job anyway. And, and he leaves. It was a huge amount of money, comfort, wealth, protection. All of those things were tied up in that job. And when he abandons all of it, it's a big sacrifice. I love that Jesus just simply calls him. Jesus does not stop and go, hey, Matthew, uh, I need you to denounce Rome. I need you to reform your political stance on a lot of things. I need you to clean yourself up and then follow me. He just says, follow me. He takes him right where he's at and then we'll work with him from this point on, just like he does with all of us. And again, that's a good reminder to us because I think we can all get in this thing like when we're sharing with people and we're trying to encourage people or invite them to church that there's part of us that's like hey it'd be great if you just kind of cleaned yourself up a little bit and maybe you change your political views a little bit hey if you kind of understood where i'm coming from my conservative viewpoint then come to church that is not how it works jesus takes all of us everyone right where they are at and then he begins to do a work in us, right? We're saved immediately. And then we are conformed over the rest of our life into his likeness. It is a process. 
And that is the case here with Matthew. But again, we look at it and like, no wonder these guys argued all the time. No wonder the disciples couldn't ever really get along a lot of stuff. But this is who Jesus calls. Now, again, the other thing, I love the result of Matthew's calling here. In verse 29, it says, And Levi, again, that's Matthew, gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Who is friends with a tax collector? Other tax collectors. And other people who are rejected by society and the outcasts. And the outcast, Levi, Matthew, invites all of his outcast friends. <laughs> you guys, I met Jesus. You guys have got to meet him too. And he throws this banquet. And, and again, we kind of picture the whole thing happening in a hall. Most likely, this was all outside. It was too big of a group to have in a house or building. So this was outside. It was a party. I imagine it was hugely joyful because Matthew's celebrating. All these other people are like, wow, I can, I've, we've heard about Jesus. We've heard people talk about Jesus. Maybe they'd even heard him teach. But now we're like sitting down at a table with him, man. This is great. And then who comes along? The wet blankets, man. Just the, the party poopers themselves. The, the self-righteous Pharisees come along and they're like, oh, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And we've talked about this before. In the Hebrew culture, the idea of sharing a meal with one another was very intimate. It still is today. I mean, we don't like to eat with people we don't like, right? I mean, we, we want to eat with people we enjoy. And, and it's very personal. You're eating food and, you know, you're making a mess and, or whatever, and you got, you know, food falling out of your mouth or whatever. And, and, and it's a fun time when it's the right people, right? But in the Hebrew culture, even more so, the idea was that it was a spiritual event. That as you and I share the same food, we're becoming the same person. We are growing together as one person. And so the scribes and the Pharisees went, well, we'd never eat with sinners because, well, we'd be becoming one of them. We'd be connected to them. And Jesus is like, yep. <laughs> he said, I haven't come to call the righteous. It isn't the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. Now, what Jesus says is, it's intense. It, and we could read it and think, well, that was, kind of, that was an interesting way of putting it. It would have been a huge shocker to them. Because what he's saying is, I guess I'm not here for you. The Messiah has come from heaven to the earth. And here's this group that he's saying, I'm not here for you. If you think you're well, you think you're righteous, I have not come to call you. I've come for the broken and the sick and the sinners. And then they launch into this whole thing of, well, how come you guys eat and drink all the time? And, and John's disciples and we are always fasting and making ourselves look miserable. <laughs> and I really picture Jesus like, I don't know. Why do you do that? Right? There in Isaiah, there was uh, a group of priests that at that time had been keeping this fast for 40 years. They, well, they didn't fast for 40 years straight, but once a year for 40 years, they had this fast that they would keep. And they would make themselves miserable and they'd, you know, distort their faces and they'd, you know, all these things. And so finally, at, at, it was like 39 years, they, they prayed and they're like, Lord, shall we continue in this fast that we have kept for you all this time? And the Lord says, 
I never asked you to do it. This thing that you've been doing is, is all your idea. The fast I have required is to show mercy. In the same way, Jesus just puts it together and goes, guys, not only am I not here for you, I'm not going to patch up what you're doing. I'm not going to somehow fix up the old way that you guys hold to. I'm not going to put the new covenant, the wine of the new covenant, in the wineskin of your traditions. And that, that's important to understand what Jesus is talking about there. I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, and they refer to like Christians who are super excited about spiritual gifts or those things. And there's things to be excited about for sure. But they'll say, oh, well, this is, a, this is a brand new empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the old Christians can't handle it. It's only the new one. That is not, and they'll say like the new one, the old one. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. He's telling these guys, your traditions, your laws, the things that you've made up, that you hold to, I'm not patching that together. I'm bringing something brand new. And you have to be flexible enough to receive it. Or it's going to make you burst. He's bringing something brand new. And I believe he continues to want to do something new in us. Right? We see the character of Jesus, that he wants the broken. He wants the sinners. He wants the lost. And that is what we should want as well. Not to get into this us four and no more, our church, keep certain people out or any of that. Man, we want people right where they're at. We want them to meet Jesus right where they're at. And let him be the one that does the work in them, just like he's doing the work in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.